0: This is the Airplane Geeks podcast. Our aim is to educate and inform you, explore and expand your passion for aviation, and entertain you a little along the way. This episode, we speak with the operator of the world's largest network of airport lounges. In the news, United's large order for Boeing planes, air travel trends for 2023, Boom Supersonics plans to develop their own engine, the U.S. Army's selection of the Bell V-280 over the Sikorsky Boeing offering, and passengers injured by turbulence on a Hawaiian Airlines flight. All that and more coming up right now. Welcome to the Airplane Geeks podcast. This is episode 729 of the show where we talk aviation. I'm Max Flight. With me is David Vanderhoof, our aviation historian from the American Helicopter Museum.
1: Well, according to my notice earlier in the pre-show, I'm... Currently, the so I think they're looking for my replacement, but I'm looking forward to having my last show of the year, maybe my last show if I believe the no, administration. No, so, no, no, no.
0: all right. Also with us is Max Trescott. He's host of Aviation News Talk podcast. He's a National CFI of the year, and an expert on the Cirrus aircraft.
2: Yeah. Good evening. And welcome. And I'm just thinking, David. You know, it's okay to be paranoid. We might actually be out to get you. <laughs> Yeah, well, <laughs> you never know. <laughs> just kidding, of course.
1: Yeah, that's what
0: they always say.
2: Yeah, just before, exactly.
0: Also with
3: us is our main man, Micah. Well, I know that the paranoids are out to get me, and, and that's why I'm wearing my tin hat.
0: <laughs>
3: <laughs> and finally with us, we
0: have Brian Coleman, former associate producer. He now produces the Journey is the Reward podcast. Along with Micah,
4: yeah. Hi, everyone. And as I was told a long time ago, a paranoid person's the one with all the facts.
0: (laughs) I have to think about that one. (laughs) Our guest this episode is Stuart Vella. He's Vice President of Commercial Development and Operations with the Plaza Premium Group (PPG). Uh, They're an award-winning leader in premium airport hospitality services An operator of the world's largest network of airport lounges. In the U.S., PBG operates the Plaza Premium Lounge at Dallas-Fort Worth Terminal E, and they recently opened a lounge at Orlando Terminal C. Stewart's been in the hospitality industry for some 30 years has extensive travel background, both land, sea, and air. So, Stuart, welcome to the Airplane Geeks podcast. Thank you for having me, Max. Now, you really are a world traveler. Do I understand you've been around Antarctica three times?
5: I have, I have. We, uh, I was on cruise ships for about 11 years. We circumnavigated Antarctica three times, which was a, a pretty special experience.
0: Fantastic. And uh, as well as uh, traveling uh, many other places, you've probably been to most of the continents of the world.
5: That's correct, that's correct. I've been very, very lucky in my travels, uh, in the cruise industry and now the obviously aviation industry. I've had a a very privileged uh, travel experience.
0: All right, well, we're going to talk with Stuart about airport lounges and making the travel experience less hectic. We'll also look at the competition for passengers by the likes of PPG, Capital One, Amex, Chase, and so forth, and talk specifically about what PPG offers. But first, we've got some aviation news from the past week. Everyone ready? Ready from the West. Ready.
3: Mainly ready. And ready from the first state.
0: Our first item comes from CNN. This is United Place's order for 200 Boeing planes, giving two troubled jets a vote of confidence. So uh, this is a big order, quite a big order. In fact, the article mentions that this United order represents 35 percent of the orders for Boeing commercial airplanes received this year, that being 35 percent of 571 planes. So, uh, Micah, this is a, a
3: major announcement for sure. It's absolutely huge. I mean, that's 100 hundred seven eighty sevens, a hundred seven thirty sevens, and they're finally going to retire their 757s, their 767s, and their oldest 777s. So uh, this is really big. Um, they're assuming that Boeing's going to be able to do it. I think that's a mighty big assumption um, based on our experience with Boeing recently, but I suspect they'll be able to get this through. These are pretty much proven aircraft at this point, and uh, they also decided to go with Boeing instead of the uh, Airbus A350, as opposed to the 787s. And they made a good decision for that because they don't have to cross-train pilots on Airbus products.
0: Sure. There's uh, a lot of motivation for an operator who has a fleet from one manufacturer to stick with it. Uh, It gets kind of expensive to introduce a, a different manufacturer. Southwest Airlines will tell you that for sure. They sure will, right, right. So yeah, as you mentioned, the orders for 100 firm and 100 option 787 dreamliners and uh, there's also uh, new orders for 56 firm 737 Max planes. Uh, those are for delivery between 2024 and 2026. And then uh finally United exercised options on 44 737 Max jets. Those are for Deliveries between 2024 and 2026. Now, in order to accomplish all this, uh, uh, Boeing needs to uh, increase its production rate. In fact, they expect in 2023 to ramp up the 787 production rate to five aircraft per month.
3: Think about that. That's more than one 787 a week.
0: Yeah, pretty spectacular. But, you know, all the, uh, the forecasts are for drastically increased uh, demand, uh, travel demand. And so, uh, you know, airlines have to make sure they have the fleet capacity. Stuart, uh, so do do airports with the uh, forecasted increase in passengers and all. Uh, This must be something that airports are certainly looking at carefully.
5: Yeah, I'd have to agree with that. I think uh, a lot of airports have been uh, caught a little bit behind the eight ball with uh, infrastructure and volumes that have returned quicker than they expected, um, and obviously a lot of infrastructure seems to be aging quite uh, quite significantly, which needs to be upgraded. So it's not just planes which need upgrading; it's jet bridges, it's terminals, it's it's every aspect.
0: And uh, Max T, the um, the airlines are certainly looking at, at ramping up their uh, their employees. I mean, we've talked about pilots before. San Francisco is is looking at some
2: rather significant expansion. I understand. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. This story comes to us from the San Francisco Chronicle, and it's related to the the main story of uh, adding hundreds of aircraft to United. I wouldn't have thought that uh, you know a, a new purchase of aircraft would uh, you know, ramp up the employee base that much. I would have thought that as older aircraft get retired, people would be moving over onto the, the new aircraft. But they're saying that uh, United's going to be spinning up their uh, SFO hub and adding uh, 2,200 jobs next year as part of this expansion to have additional uh, aircraft coming in. Currently, this is pretty mind-boggling, currently they have 10,000 United employees at SFO. Now, part of the reason is it's a big maintenance base, so a lot of people associated with that. Uh, But then again, it's also... uh, A big hub for uh, especially uh, international uh, destinations, so a lot of people based out of uh, San Francisco. So that total is going to go from 10,000 to 1,220 people by the end of 2023, so adding 2,200 people in just one year. So a big change. Uh, It also comes in the wake of American Airlines spinning things down a little bit at uh, SFO. They had announced that uh, they will be shrinking their presence uh, at that uh, base. And that's going to leave, I guess, uh, 400 American Airlines flight attendants having to seek new home bases in, in other states. Uh, so this will no longer be the home base for them. So a lot of them, unfortunately, going to be flying further to uh, start their work day.
4: Yeah, Max, I think some of the jobs that are coming to San Francisco are actually Uh, lost jobs here in Los Angeles because United has certainly moved an awful lot of international capacity out of Los Angeles and moved it up to San Francisco. And especially the ground workers, they have to be local, right? Like the mechanics have to be local. You can't fly in for that job. So I really think a lot of these new jobs are coming from that. Uh, With the airplane order, I was kind of disappointed to hear that they're taking delivery of Granted, I was happy to hear they're taking delivery of new aircraft, but it's over 10 years. I really wish that they were able to get some of these aircraft in sooner and retire some of the 767s and older aircraft that they have. And they still have a fair number of really old 737s as well. So I think although the order sounds really large, when you look at the retirements, they're really not adding that many net new aircraft.
2: So maybe this is more of a, a shifting of locations. The San Francisco Chronicle article tries to tie it more to the to the orders, but you may have it right there, Brian. It may be just a, a relocation of uh, existing people.
4: Yeah, and I know, for example, I booked a ticket a month or so ago from Los Angeles to Haneda, and it was Los Angeles-Haneda nonstop. I'm now connecting through San Francisco because they're not doing the flight through – they're not doing the nonstop on uh, – um, uh, United Metal through Los Angeles. So, yeah.
2: yeah. Years ago, American had a non stop out of San Jose to uh, Japan, except the runways weren't long enough to take off with a full load of fuel. So, their yeah, first stop right. after takeoff was Oakland. <laughs> so, they flew, you know, all of uh, probably 30, 40 miles and stopped and refueled and then continued on. Yeah. When I was
4: living in the Bay Area, I was actually on that flight a few times. Well, looking at uh
0: Next year, 2023, rapidly approaching, Uh, we have an article from HospitalityNet.org, Three Air Travel Trends to Watch for in 2023. And this article was written based on a conversation with United's director of UK, Ireland, Israel, and Offline Sales, which is kind of an interesting title. (laughs) UK, Ireland, Israel, and Offline Sales. I wonder how those got aggregated under one uh, director. But uh, three things. uh, Alternative airports will increase in popularity. Greener air travel will remain a top priority. And travel will become a lighter touch experience. So when he talks about alternative airports increasing in popularity, it means uh, airports that are not currently thought of as as hubs. And with the increasing volumes, in fact, the uh, international... Air Transport Association, IATA, does a, a survey of air travelers. And in 2036, they expect 7.8 billion passengers to travel. And that's compared to 4 billion travels uh, travelers this year. So uh, that's almost a doubling by 2036. And with that increase, the travelers are looking for different routes— partly based on convenience, and um, this is going to uh, push more volume at uh, some of these alternative airports, these non-hub airports.
3: Well, you know, that has a lot to do with the last story, too, in terms of United buying those 787s, and uh, we don't have hub-and-spoke so much as we used to. Uh, that's why the A380 is no more when it comes right down to it. Hub-and-spoke routes have disappeared. People want to fly direct, and now we have the ability to. Uh, Boston is now a uh, almost a gateway city to uh, the Far East where there are direct flights into China and uh, and Japan and, and, and other places like that where it just wasn't possible possible before uh, until the the 787 the triple seven the a350 came about and it can be done less expensively and also the idea of connecting i hate that the fact that from portland any place i want to go i pretty much have to connect through newark or like last year or earlier this year san francisco um you know it's a horrible experience connecting through an airport airports are just awful places to be. Although we'll talk about that more later. I was going to say, because, unless if you have
4: a nice lounge to go to, yeah, that's but, uh, not so bad. No.
3: We, we have on. someone with us; that will probably help it make help make it much better. But but nonetheless, so I think that's what the public wants, and we have the technology to be able to do it now.
0: That second item, greener air travel, will remain a top priority. I think that's uh, kind of a no-brainer. We're seeing a lot of activity in this area, electric aircraft, sustainable aviation fuel, even hydrogen uh, is a is a power source. We're seeing this uh, really uh, across the industry in a lot of different
4: areas. So I think that's kind of a no-brainer. It's a no-brainer, but when you look at product on board, the quantity of plastic that's used is still amazing to me. And I was on a flight, i I've been on so many flights recently, I can't remember exactly where. But United had some food packaged in some plastic that was the loudest plastic possible. And people were crinkling it. And you could <laughs> hear it five, six rows away. And having plastic within plastic, it's, it's just crazy. The quantity of plastic that was in this packaging of various food items and other things that they give to you. Um, so I don't know. I think they have a long way to go for that green bit.
0: Yeah, I think they, yeah, the industry has a long way to go in general. I I think the imperative being placed on the industry by regulation, by public pressure, uh, you know, all of those things is pretty significant. And, uh, the, you know, the industry, I think, has recognized that uh, they can't do nothing, right? We can't do, we can't do nothing. Uh, even though you might make an argument that the uh, that the contribution to global warming from aviation is is kind of a small percentage, but it doesn't matter when it comes to public perception. So I think this is a a big issue for, for the entire industry. And then on that third item, travel becoming a lighter-touch experience, um, this uh, more data from the IATA survey or N-IATA survey in 2019, IATA found that 46% of passengers only, well, just 46% of passengers said they were willing to share their biometric data to improve airport processes. But in the 2021 global survey, 73% of the passengers said they would share their biometric data. That's a huge jump. So I think. Um, um, smooth processes, efficient processes, fast processes at the airport is uh, is very important to uh, to travelers these days.
4: Yeah, I'm also concerned over the definition of lighter touch because as we saw from Frontier, who did away with their 800 uh, phone support, I just wonder if they consider that a lighter touch, um, really like a no touch in that particular case. So I think there there are certain position certain functions where it is nice having more interaction with the airline. Things like the biometric, I, I have no issue with that whatsoever and kind of enjoy being able to blow through either security or immigration or wherever with the biometric data. That doesn't bother me at all. So I yeah. I, I, I look
3: forward to those changes. I uh, I have some serious issues with biometric and privacy stuff uh what a surprise micah
4: yeah it's it's okay micah you're entitled to your opinion and you'll still be wrong it's fine
3: (laughs) okay i'm happy to be wrong and we can we can argue about it on the journey as a reward but uh but what really frightens me is uh lighter touch to me seems to be a corporate buzzword for lesser service that's my concern
4: yeah, well, from
0: the passenger standpoint, I think you know uh, having a uh, smooth process through the through the airport is uh, something that we'd all like to see. If biometrics can you know assist in that way uh, without the privacy issues that could come up, uh, all the better. Uh, Stuart, are are the lounges? Uh, um, you know looking at these issues of how to make it a more convenient process for for the clients
5: yeah from, from a guest aspect I think that there's a, a definite sentiment that the less touch points or, or contact points the better um, guests definitely do prefer a seamless transition whether it's from obviously check-in through TSA or security and then through into the lounge so uh, we're working very hard to actually bring in um, a variety of uh, entry methods, which allow the guests to come in without having to to either line up or queue up, whether it's biometrics or, or other ways. Um, the, the catch for us is we still want to maintain that customer service, that contact, that uh, meet and greet aspect with our guests. And that's where, as much as people do want to have a seamless uh, process, they do still enjoy and still want to have that that special bit of attention coming into a lounge um, or coming through an airport. Um, I think that the biggest hurdles are overcoming you know TSA, where there's big lines, there's a lot of crowding, a lot of challenges like that. If there's ways to speed that up, uh, I think that's where the big benefit would be.
0: Yeah, Brian, how are you finding the, uh, the the lounges? Do you find a lot of variability across the different airports that you've been visiting lately?
4: For the most part, I've only been in United lounges, and they don't seem to have nearly the overcrowding issues that the American Express Centurion lounges have or Delta has been having Uh, internationally. Again, it's really hit and miss. It depends on time of day. Uh, So I've been fairly fortunate where I really haven't experienced many overcrowded or uncomfortably crowded lounges. I've been pleasantly surprised over that
0: next item comes from paxx.aero. Boom plans new Symphony supersonic engine design. Well, Boom Supersonic was unable to get any of the major engine manufacturers to commit to developing an engine for them, which, at first blush, would seem like a really significant problem. (laughs) (laughs) Just a little problem. What's Boom going to do? Well, they've decided that instead of... Uh, development of an existing engine from one of the engine manufacturers, they'll develop their own engine, and it's going to be called the Symphony, uh, which is an interesting, uh, an interesting name. Uh, this is a, a medium bypass engine with around thirty-five thousand pounds of thrust, and they've uh, announced three partners: Florida Turbine Technologies, or FTT which is really not Florida Turbine Technologies. It's it's really now uh, Kratos Turbine Technologies. Uh, FTT became a division of Kratos Defense and Security Solutions in – I think they purchased it in 2019. Um, but that's for the engine design. Also involved in this as a partner is GE Additive, um, additive meaning uh, 3D printing essentially – and GE Additive is going to be contributing additive technology design consulting. And then they're also pulling in standard aero for maintenance. And um, they're going to go their own, which, I mean, with, with Kratos uh, in, involved, uh, there's, you know, there's a significant amount of, significant amount of experience there. Uh, David will uh, remember Kratos from our Conversations on the UAV Digest podcast, but Kratos Turbine Technologies uh, develops and produces uh, small jet engines for things like cruise missiles and UAS, unmanned aerial systems. So uh, they're firmly in the low volume, I would say, um, small jet
3: engine business. Yeah, you know, I just think it's kind of funny that um, Pratt Whitney. Rolls-Royce, GE, Honeywell, Safran, all say to Boom, yeah, good luck with that. Yeah, have a good time. Yeah, no, no, that, really nice talking to you. And uh, and Boom had said that, if uh, you'll read it, the article, it said that the uh, uh, the supplier would not be forced to invent a completely different engine. And uh, now Boom is saying, oh, that's no longer the plan. Uh, I, I, I'll still be interested to see if this actually happens. It's... Uh, yeah, uh, they're certainly raising a lot of money, and I wonder what's going to happen to that money or where it's gone so far.
2: Yeah, I totally agree. I, I think there are a bunch of questions here. I was kind of surprised that for a supersonic aircraft that they could take, yeah, that they could tweak an existing commercial engine to uh, to get there. It Seems like there would be more than just a few tweaks to uh, to get there. Now they did have that partnership with Rolls Royce for about two years before Rolls Royce apparently ended it. If you look at the company's current contracts, uh, this may not be uh, complete, but United Airlines has 15 on order. American has 20 on order. It just doesn't seem like it's necessarily a, a high-volume market. So I would have to imagine that some of the large manufacturers are you know, really gun-shy about what the potential volumes would be. You could, you could really lose your shirt as an engine manufacturer, I would think, uh, putting a lot of R&D into this and then you know, selling relatively few engines. Do you, Max, do you think that's why the big players are kind of shying away from this? There's a number of possible
0: reasons, but I think one of them uh, certainly is the volume. Now, the, any of the manufacturers are going to look at what do they have uh, currently uh, that they're producing that could be developed into an engine that would uh, be suitable for for the, uh, the boom supersonic plane, uh, the Overture. Looking at that and then looking at how much would that cost to, to modify that engine – What's the projected volume? So essentially, it's the business case. You know, does the does the cost line up with the uh, the, the potential return? And um, if if it doesn't, then you know, unless there's some other strategic reason for the company to be involved, you know, they're gonna probably going to want to pass. But there could be other reasons. There could be um, availability of resources like engineering talent, right? Maybe their engineering workforce is actively engaged in other projects and so uh, staffing up would be an issue to uh, you know to support boom Uh, could be just purely budget do they have the funding to pay for it at that time and not uh, negatively impact the balance sheet let's say in a way that they uh, they don't want to so it could be a number of different things but i think volume might be a, a player
4: I don't know, Max, one of the things that I was thinking about with this project from day one is why wouldn't they be able to use a military engine? I don't know what the thrust is of an engine in the F-22 or F-35, but they're certainly supersonic engines, right? And can't you just slap four of them on boom and you're done? Well, there
0: are some technology – yeah, not not quite, but um, <laughs> but there are some technologies involved there in the military engines that uh, you wouldn't want to be out available in the commercial world um, and there there are some other reasons as well ownership of the IP for the engine and so forth. so yeah it's it's unusual for a military engine to be used that way. Sometimes a, a you know an old old engine um, that's uh, you know, several generations in the past can sometimes be used for projects like this, but uh, it's it, it, it's not uh, it's not likely.
1: It's much easier to make a civilian engine into a military one,
0: yes, yes, which is
1: the other way around
0: which which happens um you know witness the uh the c seventeen engine, which is a, essentially a commercial engine
2: Max, as you look at the conceptual rendering that they have in this drawing, is there anything that strikes you as interesting or different about this particular engine? I mean, the first thing I noticed at the the high pressure stage has to me what seems a large number of rotors, I count about eight or nine. Uh, but then maybe I'm just not used to uh, these types of engines. What do you see as you look at this that stands out to you?
0: Yeah, that's a lot of stages in the compressor, um, especially for a for a modern engine. It's almost amazing that this, this thing produces that much thrust, or maybe it doesn't, and modifications will bring it up to that 35,000 pounds of thrust level. Because uh, this is a small engine, the one that Kratos produces right now. Uh, so... Yeah, there's a lot of risk. There's a lot of things that have to come together. The overture uh, schedule, the boom overture schedule, has uh, slipped one year. Uh, Previously, first flight was to be in 2026. Now they're saying uh, 2027. Um, It's slipped many times, or at least several times in the past. Will it slip again in the future? Mm, uh, We'll see, but I don't think it would be a huge surprise, uh, given that they are at this stage now with uh, engine development for, for this aircraft.
4: It makes me really sad because I'd love to fly on this aircraft. I just I don't think it'll be in commercial
3: service by the time I'm still flying. I think it's very much going to be like the flying car. We should see it any time in the next ten years. Yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah. I knew as a kid that we'd be on Mars uh, very, very soon, and fifty years later, we're still still waiting. Hey, I'm, I'm curious as I look at this after the uh, the high compression stage. There's another stage of about five rotors where it's kind of expanding diameters. I'm not familiar with it. What what is that particular stage doing for us? It's kind of the the third section behind the initial fan.
0: Uh, that's I'm not looking at the uh, the diagram right now, but that that's probably the turbine, probably a low pressure turbine. Ah, uh, okay. Um, of course, that makes sense. Yeah, which uh, would drive uh, likely one of the compressor stages. All right. Well, we had a um, an, an incident with Hawaiian Airlines, and uh, a number of people were injured as a result of this, Max.
2: Yeah, every once in a while we see a story about uh, people injured on uh, an airliner. What makes this one a little bit different is just the number of people that were injured. This was a Hawaiian Airlines flight from Phoenix to Honolulu over the weekend on uh, Sunday, which hit severe turbulence as it was somewhere over the Pacific. And folks who've kind of looked at the flight path, and even one of the uh, meteorologists who was commenting on the story said, looks like they flew into a thunderstorm. Now, that's pretty unusual as well. Uh, Generally, airlines uh, do a really excellent job of, uh, well, I should say airliners do an excellent job of uh, getting around the thunderstorms. Now, here in the U.S., of course, they have the assistance of uh, ground-based radar. Uh, When they're in the air over the middle of the Pacific, they don't have that, but presumably they would have... uh, onboard radar. Though, frankly, interpreting onboard radar is a pretty complex uh, uh, subject. And so uh, who knows why they may have ended up uh, in the middle of this particular storm. But uh, the numbers are unclear, but at least 36 passengers were injured, 11 of them seriously. In fact, there were so many people that were injured uh, the city actually had a bus uh, taking some of the less injured passengers uh, to the uh, to the airport. The more severe uh, injured uh, passengers ended up in uh, ambulances uh, there's a separate story, uh, we can see what some of the uh, the damage looks like, and we're literally talking about uh you know punched up holes in the the ceiling where people 's heads hit the ceiling. Uh, so people were just really flying around the cabin uh, tremendously. Um, typically, it's the flight attendants that usually end up getting uh, injured because they're the people who are not seat belted in. Uh, given that there are this many people uh, transported, it tells you a lot of people didn't have their seat belt on. Uh, so all I can say is, people, please, when you're flying, at least keep that belt loosely connected. Uh, mine is on all the time, unless I'm getting up to head to the restroom. Uh, but I don't mind loosening it a little bit mid-flight. But at least it's going to keep me, you know, within two inches of my seat and, and keep me from flying out of the seat and you know hitting my head into the uh, top of the ceiling. So damage to the airplane, a lot of you know, a lot of blood. Uh, you know cuts and stuff like that, so kind of interesting that this is uh you know, this was a more severe incident that we usually run into. The New York Times article said the
3: seatbelt sign was on at the time. And uh, I will bet that most of those injuries were people that were still not wearing their seatbelts. And the New York Times article also went on to say that a 14-month-old child was uh, hurt very badly. And I will put money on the fact that that was a lap child and was being held on someone's lap. And uh, again, it's it's legal, but uh, it's not a safe thing to do and not recommended. Yeah, agreed.
4: Yeah, and this is one of the things that makes me wonder when I'm traveling around and I'm up talking with the flight attendants, hitting clear air turbulence, right? And Max T, I think you can vouch for that, that it's, it's a nasty thing to come across. And it's something in the back of my mind, and it's one of those risk-reward type things, right? I, and I love talking with the flight attendants. I love sharing stories with them and hearing what's going on in their lives. But I also really don't want to hit the ceiling with my head.
2: Yeah, there's certainly a number of flight attendants who have been severely injured uh, in some of these past uh, accidents. I saw also in another story about this, uh, somebody commented that their uh, mother, who was on the flight with them, had gone to the bathroom. I mean, talk about bad timing and bad luck. I mean, maybe you're not going to fly around as much, but holy cow, you're in a pretty small, tight, confined area. So you might still be uh, hitting your head if you went. to. you know flying so yeah I, I think it's just a good reminder to everyone listening please 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 it might seem inconvenient but oh it saves injuries just keep the darn seatbelt on all the time yeah agreed absolutely
0: from the drive.com one of David Vanderhoof's favorite if not the favorite website in fact I'm wearing
1: I'm wearing my drive Christmas shirt. Are you really? I'm <laughs> not sure. I am. Wow. Wow. Did that come from the drive? Yes, it did.
0: No kidding. Wow. I'm surprised. Well, so the uh, the U.S. Army's fleet of UH-60 Blackhawk helicopters is to be replaced, right, David, under the Future Long Range Assault Aircraft Initiative, F-L-R-A-A. And uh, so there was flora. a— uh, Flora?
1: It's not Flora. Flora.
0: Flora. Flora.
3: Certainly right. not, fauna. not fauna. It's not so,
0: gra. It's a stretch. So there's a competition. The uh, the army choosing the Bell V-20 uh, Valor tilt rotor uh, versus the Sikorsky Boeing entrant, which is a compound coaxial helicopter based on the uh, X2 technology from Sikorsky. And the army has made its
1: selection. They did. They picked the the V two eighty over the Defiant, which was the SB one. Um, they preferred the tilt rotor concept to the SB one Defiant, which is a coaxial, which means you have two um, counter rotating propellers on the same axis. Um, it's a very, I like to say, it's a very Russian thing. Um, the Kamov program has been doing it for years, um, but. I, the bottom line is the the 280 the Valor was a much more mature program the the SB1 has had delays and um, so uh, Bell inevitably has won this program um, and it looks like after all these years the Army has decided tilt rotors are not a bad thing. What's interesting about this the difference between this and say a v22 is the 280 does not tilt its engines the rotors tilt but the engines do not the engines stay the same so it's a it's a slightly different concept for the tilt rotor in fact this is in this case this is just the rotor tilting um and not the engines but um the H-60 program, if anyone knows, is probably the largest Sikorsky project available. There are a lot of H-60s out there, and if this is going to be the direct replacement for the H-60, besides the Army, you can you can bet that there will be um, international customers around the world to replace their H-60s, which it'll be interesting that it's – the army is considered the uh, v-22 a mature concept at this point
0: and of course we talked with the chief engineer for the bell v-28 valor program paul wilson back in episode 576 so if you're interested in learning more about that that of course uh, you can find by going to airplanegeeks.com
3: 576 yeah, I think it's just amazing they were able to come up with a tilt shaft as opposed to having to tilt the whole engine or, or nacelle. It's uh, just unbelievable. But I, I am curious, and I don't know if you, you know anything about this, David, or could comment on it, that you know the, the Air Force had such issues with the Cheyenne because it had wings, and obviously this has wings, and I'm, I'm wondering if, uh, if there's going to be any argument coming from it, and if not, why not?
1: The Cheyenne was an attack helicopter um, and a borderline aircraft, which at the time the Air Force thought was stepping on their territory. Um, It is clearly an Osprey or a tilt rotor is used now by multiple services. Um, Soon it'll be four out of four. The arguments over whose territory is what has um, been pretty clear, so I don't I don't really think that there's an issue there. Um, it's not like when the army was flying like C seven Caribous, which were a large um, transport aircraft, which was basically complementing the air force, um, and so that's that's how that worked out. So no, I don't. I, the, the role of the attack or transport helicopter, whether it's two rotors front and back, which is a Chinook, which both the Air Force almost bought and the Army flies, or two rotors laterally, uh, which the Air Force currently flies, but the Army doesn't, I don't think will make a difference in the strategy of, of, of things.
0: All right. All right. Again, our guest is Stuart Vella, the VP of Commercial Development and Operations with Plaza Premium Group. Stuart, again, welcome to the podcast. Thank you again, Max. Uh, can you uh, give us a, a little overview first of the uh, the sort of the airport lounge industry, if, if you will? Tell us a, a little bit about... Uh, who operates these lounges? Where are they located? Which uh, which customers get access to them?
5: So I think, um, obviously, in the U.S. market, the, the lounge program is uh, pretty well established and, and has been sort of maintained and run very much by your sort of legacy carriers being Delta, United, and, and American. Um, internationally, though, there's obviously a, a huge variety of options available to guests that are traveling, and, and Plaza Premium Group started 25 years ago, um, specifically for that reason where, tiered guests or, or cips commercially important passengers they obviously always had lounge access but there was a, a whole nother 80 percent of the airplane which didn't have access so uh, our founder saw a, saw a need there for that that market and uh, started to create uh, common use lounges to allow people who weren't tiered um didn't have the, the elite statuses to, to access a lounge now obviously in the in the us um there's been some common use lounges for for a little while but generally it's been credit card lounges or airline lounges in the u.s market and uh, we've definitely seen that shift now in the last sort of i would say five years we've seen that that start to really transition in the u.s where customers are demanding uh more access to lounges better lounges um and they don't necessarily want to be tied down to a single airline um to get that tier or access or necessarily even a credit card
0: So who is, you know, reacting to that uh, customer pressure? Is it the the airlines, the airports, third parties, such as PPG?
5: Well, I think obviously our our, uh, our focus is customer service, and that's where we've come into the market to offer that that lounge space. But I think that Whether it's credit cards and particularly airports, they've seen this as a a very definite need for their guests and customer service to to offer an airport that offers facilities, not just food and beverage, not just bars, not just shopping, but actual lounge for everybody. Um, And that's where we fit in. We bring a a premium level lounge service product and we make it available to all guests traveling. You don't have to to segregate or, or separate people based on their cabin class everybody who wants access can have access and that's something which we feel is very important to be able to give whether it's a family traveling once a year or a businessman traveling every day Um, they should all have the same facilities available to them and i think the airports have definitely seen that and realized the importance of it because ultimately they want to see their customer service ratings from an airport aspect um, beat the next airport because there's a lot of competition between each airport as you talked about earlier you know people are using uh second and third tier airports more and more for convenience now If a a first tier or tier one airport um, can't match the facilities of a tier two or tier three, then they're going to lose traffic to these other airports, one through locations or or easier access and better facilities.
4: So, Stuart, one of the questions that I have for you, and this comes from a position of um, being naive in this category, would you say that Priority Pass is your largest competitor or is it the airline lounges themselves or how do you... How do you view yourself or how do you compare with the other lounges that are available? We see ourselves as
5: a bit of a unique product. Um, Priority Pass is an aggregator. Basically, they're, they're, without saying the wrong thing, almost like a marketing company. They obviously then on-sell access to to a variety of lounges. They don't actually generally, they do have some of their own lounges, but generally they don't run their own lounges. Our lounges are 360 degree end-to-end our property, our staff, our development, our training, our product. So we actually have skin in the game. So for every one of our lounges, we've got skin in the game and it's it's our reputation on the line. So we try to make sure that our product is a premium product and it exceeds our competitors, which is also why we've got, you know, six Skytrax um, best independent lounge in the world. We We pride ourselves on our customer service and the product we offer. We also focus on not just obviously putting volumes in, it's, it's about looking after our airline partners. Ultimately, that's who the airports you know, survive on is, is airlines. We want to make sure we offer the airlines that don't have their own lounge or need to use an alternative lounge the best possible product for their customers as well.
3: You know, Stuart, I've been fortunate enough, and I guess most of us on here have been fortunate enough to be able to use uh, airport lounges, uh, particularly uh, for me, the United lounges. And they're great, but there have been a lot of people that may be listening that, you know, look at it and and don't really know what it is, haven't been inside, don't know what you're going to find when you go into a lounge. Tell us what we're going to find in your product when you go
5: inside. What is it? What's available? So we're trying to be a bit of a disruptor in the industry, especially in the US, where obviously it's been a very uh a stable product for for some time and the offering has been fairly stable we want to elevate that now so we're offering obviously you know, full food and beverage full cocktail bars full bars um, nap pods showers uh, kids play areas basically anything you'd find almost um if you expect a high level hotel lobby with then a kids area on the side is is what you can expect to a, to an extent so um, instead of buying catered food in, we actually have full production kitchens. We have qualified chefs in those kitchens cooking. Um, we prepare food a la carte for our guests. If you've got an allergy or a, or a special need uh, from a meal requirement, we can generally do it within reason. Um, we look at our demographics and sociographics of who the guests are coming through the airport and we actually build the lounge to meet that. Now, Orlando is a, a really easy example. Obviously you have a very large leisure uh, population or, or demographic coming through. So we've built the lounge with two separate sections, one that caters for the kids and the families, and we've got mothers changing rooms and all of these sorts of things, soda fountains and candy walls and video games, et cetera, while still allowing for the businessman to go down the other end of the lounge into business pods where they can work quietly. Now, if you then turn turn that to, for instance, a, a LaGuardia product, you'd take more of a business focus on that. So we actually take the time to look at the demographic and sociographic coming through each airport, And we actually build and design our our products to meet that need. It's not a cookie cutter approach. And we obviously work very, very closely with the airports themselves to make sure they're our biggest stakeholder, that we're meeting their needs, what what they need as our business partner. So by doing that, we feel that we actually meet each airport's customer needs uh, exceptionally well. And it's something which we don't feel has been done. Um, Taking a cookie cutter approach across all the airports, it, it doesn't work because each one is absolutely individual.
3: And are all these facilities and all these benefits available basically for the price of entry as it is with other lounges or is it a la carte once you go inside?
5: No, so obviously all of your all the facilities are available to anyone as they pay entry fee. If you want to upgrade to top shelf liquor or or top shelf food, then obviously that's an additional charge. But obviously we have full hot buffets, full cold buffets, full bar, full service. Everything is included on your entry fee. And what is the price of entry? It varies depending on the location. So, for instance, in Orlando, we're doing it at $50 a head at the moment. Um, That's obviously our opening special. Um, That will also vary depending on the market. Obviously, if you go to New York, you're going to have a much higher cost, whether it's labor, food cost, et cetera. So we have quite a dynamic pricing model. Each airport and the demographic will also drive that. Um, Again, using Orlando as a really easy example, if you've got two adults and a couple of kids coming in, if you're charging $50 a head for a family, all of a sudden that becomes very, very expensive. So we wanna make sure we, we build a dynamic pricing model to meet again that customer need and actually take care of the customer and, and let them have that experience instead of outpricing them from the market.
4: So I was really fortunate years ago, I purchased a lifetime subscription to the United red, when it was the red carpet club. So I get in on that deal. I know many lounges offer an annual price instead of the paper use. Are you doing anything on the lifetime or annual?
5: No. So we, we feel that um, you can get more benefit and people actually use the lounges more often if they buy uh, either a two, five or 10 pass um, access thing. So they don't feel like they're going to get robbed. They know, okay, I'm going to use it two times or five times. And it, they actually feel they're getting value for money instead of, say, paying five $600 for a year's past. They don't use it and they feel, well, hang on, have I got value for money here? So one of our core principles, obviously, is customer service, love and care, and value for money. We want to make sure our guests come in and they, they feel like they've got value for money. They leave happy. They feel like they've had their, their expectations exceeded. Um, they don't feel like they've been taken advantage of by paying $50, 60 and coming in and having you know, carrot sticks and hummus. <laughs> yep. I, I not like that there's
3: that. anything wrong with that. That's right. <laughs> no, it's, hey, look, it, it, it's, it's
5: a, it, it, exactly, look, that's a, that's a market end and, and it, it works. It's not who we are. We we want to offer a premium product and, and that's what we, we expect to deliver to the U.S. Uh, market. Hmm.
0: Now, we, we were talking earlier a little bit about uh, uh, green being environmentally responsible. Brian was talking about plastic uh, utensils and so forth. But uh, there's a thing called Lead certification, L E E D, and how have uh, how have you approached that? Maybe explain what that is and how you've approached it.
5: Yeah, so from a design aspect, um, we look at all of our lounges meeting a minimum of silver lead qualification, ideally gold. um, After gold, it gets a little bit hard within the confines of of an airport shell um, because you're working with a lot of existing infrastructure and, and various other things, but. From a design aspect, we, we try to ap- absolute minimum meet silver lead, um, ideally gold. And that means, obviously, we're working with sustainable products from a construction aspect. We're looking at using natural lighting. Um, we're losing, using, obviously, um, products which are, are mainly sustainable and environmentally friendly throughout the lounge um, development aspect. Then it goes on to your ESG program, which is our environmental and social um, policies. Basically, we don't or try not to use any any single-serve plastics. We try to make sure that um, all the production, food waste, anything like that is turned back into whether it goes back into composting, um, those sorts of things. So, for instance, DFW, I know that they're running a compost program, which has taken. I would have to check the facts, but it's a couple of hundred ton of, uh, of food waste out of uh, landfill. I'd have to check whether it's a year or a month, but it's, it's a phenomenal figure. Um, so we want to help and, and take part in all of those. And we, and we do this not only just in the States, we do it globally. So we, we've got a, a very significant uh, environmental policy to look at all of those things from food waste through to the, the knives and forks. We're using single-use plastics, every aspect.
0: And what's the motivation for PPG to take that approach? Why are you doing that?
5: I think we all have to be a good social, um, social and commercial and corporate citizen these days. I think that... Anyone who can simply turn a blind eye to it uh, is probably pretty short-sighted in the industry they're working in. Um, our founder and owner, Mr. Song, he's got a very, very philanthropic aspect um, and intends to contribute and, and make sure that, that his company, ideally, is, is being a good corporate citizen.
0: So it's part of the corporate culture of, of PPG, it sounds like. 100%. Hundred percent. Fantastic. There's some interesting things, uh, design aspects or, or um, uh, features of uh, some of the lounges. I'm kind of interested in hearing about the uh, Orlando storytelling
5: wall. So um, Orlando, you know, random fact, is number one social uh, media placed airport in the U.S. So we wanted to work with them to help them maintain that. So we've got a, a massive uh, Instagramable wall built into the lounge where people can actually have that experience, take that selfie, as they call it, put it on Instagram, um tag orlando etc and that's just another example of where we we want to make sure we're working with airports and our, our partners and, and our business partners it's not it's not a supply agreement um we see them as business partners we want to make sure that we're, we're supporting them in all of those aspects so that ties into obviously then the the um the palm court and the massive digital displays they've got down there and also our kids area where they've got uh, interactive uh uh, turtle displays where they can use it use their body to chase a turtle which eats seaweed it's uh look the kids love it it's 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 really good
3: now i'm looking at uh, the list of the lounges within the usa and there's quite a few of them and uh what i noticed is on uh, at, at jfk at newark at san francisco and down at dulles that uh, you're uh, you're operating the, the virgin atlantic clubhouses their lounges but are those Based on your operation, are they only for Virgin Atlantic passengers or are they your lounges that are open to anyone?
5: No, they're, they're a Virgin Atlantic product um, and, and obviously branded and, and you know representing, obviously, uh, a Virgin Atlantic. We do have access policies where, where people can access them as a third-party lounge um, within, obviously, the confines of capacities and various other aspects.
0: Uh, Micah, you recall that we uh, recently spoke with uh, Julie Melnick of uh, SkySquad, that offers a service uh, to assist uh, passengers through the uh, through the airport process. And uh, Stuart, you also have a, a meet and greet service at DFW.
5: That's correct. We have a always program at uh, at DFW, which obviously helps. Uh, well, it helps everyone from celebrities through to, to whether your parents are flying in from a different country and they need some assistance getting off, off the plane or, or onto the plane. So it really is a, a service which is uh, available to everybody. Um, and it makes a big difference. We, we see it making a huge difference to to a lot of people and, and their travel um travel experience
3: and how do you arrange for that if you're uh, coming into dfw or you have your 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 older parents or older folks that are going to need that kind of help because it's a wonderful service there are so many times that you know people look for assistance and and need a wheelchair or whatever and everything's great once they get to the wheelchair but getting from the car to the wheelchair or the wheelchair service can be really really difficult so how do they arrange to have somebody from plaza premium meet them
5: Yep, so they can jump on either online and go direct to our, our website, our Always website, or they can actually go through DFW's uh, airport website, and it's available through through either way. And uh, once you make the phone call or, or email, then it's all taken care of uh, directly from there. Stuart Vella, thank you so much for coming on the show. Can you uh, tell our listeners
0: where they can learn more about PPG or any of the things that we've been talking about? Certainly. Thank
5: you for having me again. And yeah, j- jump online, Plaza Premium Lounges um is is very prevalent online you've got all the information there or um i'm guessing reach out to you max and you can put them in touch with us directly and 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 our team so we're more than happy to to help and service anybody who wants to come and visit our lounges uh either here in the us or or globally where we've got over 300 locations and and a network of about 1400 so hopefully look forward to welcoming many people into our lounges very soon fantastic thanks again Stuart. thanks everybody have a great day
0: All right, what's up with the geeks? Max Trescott, have you been flying much lately?
2: I been doing very little else except flying much lately yeah i've had uh, the last couple of weeks have been uh, crazy thank goodness for a few days off at thanksgiving haven't had many since then except when i get lucky enough when people cancel it's like oh yes i'm so happy to to have a a free few hours to not be up in the air but a couple of fun trips uh, each of the last two weekends i've been uh, doing vision jet jaunts the prior weekend was down to san diego and back. And then uh, this uh, past weekend down to Orange County and back. And actually uh, those trips were longer than they seem because the, uh, the Vision Jet ended up staying down there, which meant I had to shuttle back and forth on Southwest uh, for each of the legs, which uh, is giving me lots of Southwest miles. Anyway, I'm certainly enjoying uh, Southwest. I have been uh, getting the um, the more expensive um, ticket on them, sitting up in the front row. And it's so nice just to be able to bolt immediately after we get to the uh, to the the destination so yep between that and uh, keeping aviation news talk running pretty busy uh, this week coming up on aviation news talk we're going to be talking about the safe about math and how pilots use math to enhance safety so fun conversation with uh, math professor dr Catherine cavignaro and max t are you checking your bag on southwest or are you carrying it on board with you No, no, for certainly, you know, I haven't checked a bag in years uh, on any airline. Uh, Seriously, I just, uh, the trips are short enough that uh, I figure out how not to check the bag. And that's been wonderful. Speaking of bags, of course, um, if you've listened uh,
0: to the last episode, last week's episode, we have some some giveaways that uh, a couple of the folks that we uh, interviewed were kind enough to offer to Airplane Geeks listeners. And uh, I haven't shared these with, with you all, you guys on the, on the podcast here, my co-hosts. I haven't shared them with, with you yet, but we're getting a, a really huge response. But there was um, uh, one in particular, Max, that uh, talked about how much he enjoys uh, listening to you and uh, specifically the, the Cirrus jet because he's got a, a flight simulator or Flight sim of the cirrus jet, and um, he he loves uh, you know flying in that uh, in that method. Uh, and so he's a big uh, big fan of of yours. So uh, if you haven't listened to the last episode and uh, you're interested in, uh, some really interesting uh, giveaways, do that. Um, we explain how to do that. I'm not going to go into that uh, again here. But the response has been uh, really enormous so far. So uh, if you want to get in on that, be sure you do. Uh, let's see, I'll mention this really quickly. We haven't talked about this in a while, but the eatattheairport.com website, which is uh, where we have a, a map, basically, where you can find airports that you might be near or fly into that offer an eating establishment, a diner or a restaurant or something and it's a way to uh, help support the that operation at airports and of course it's all uh, listener supported it's basically crowdsourced and uh, there's ways to submit airports uh, eating establishments and it's on that webpage eat at, eat at the airport.com but uh, I'll just mention that well, we've had a lot of submissions and I think I'm all caught up uh, so if uh, you submitted uh, an eating establishment at an airport or a revision to one and don't see it reflected, um, then let us know. So they all should be uh, in there at this point. And there's a lot of airports in there.
4: Hey, Max, in that regard, recently I was at the restaurant at the airport in Oxnard, and I took some photographs. And I just can't remember with at eat at the airport. Is there a place for photographs as well? Or is it only a text description of the restaurant? It's just text, but
0: we can put links in there so that uh, if we we can put the an image up somewhere and then link to it, we could do okay. that. So it's a little kludgy, um, but eh, we could probably figure it out. And also mention that uh, th- this is not just a U.S.-based thing. This is international. Now, most of the airports in that little database are U.S., but there are airports in there from all over the world. So For the international listeners,
2: please contribute as well. And just to tag on that, I would encourage everyone, if you've got uh, a restaurant that's close to you at an airport that you know of, uh, or airports that you fly to, go check and make sure that this is up to date. Because unfortunately, airport restaurants are probably even more dynamic yeah. than regular restaurants, which do come in a, go on a fairly regular basis. And I think the challenges with airports, uh, often they're serving a much more limited demographic. Uh, they've just got a much smaller uh, you know, group of people to choose from, and that's... It's just hard to keep these uh, going. So Max, I'll send you an update on Palo Alto because our airport restaurant there is out of business. But if you just walk a hundred feet across the uh, the little road there, we've got the uh, the golf course uh, restaurant, which is virtually as <laughs> I mean literally the golf course restaurant is about the closest thing to the uh, to the old one that's out of business.
3: And I'm going to have to check on that Lemington Maine airport restaurant too because it was open and it was closed and it was open again, and I'm not sure what's going on. The the chef that was there that had such great food has moved to another place and I'll take you there next time you're in Maine Max but it was Perfect. great but uh what's amazing and I don't know if you found the same thing uh Max West but food at most of these airport restaurants that I've been to have always been just great I mean really unbelievably good
2: yeah, yeah. never had a bad meal at an
3: airport yeah. restaurant that's been my experience too
4: I had the cinnamon bun French toast at the restaurant in Oxnard, and it was a cinnamon bun that was probably eight inches in diameter, and it was sliced into four slices, and I absolutely could not eat it all. And if I did, I probably would have had a heart attack, but it was so
3: incredibly good, but lots of leftovers. And just to be clear, we're not talking about big commercial airports like DFW and LAX. We're talking about tiny little airports, because I've certainly had bad meals at airports before, but yeah. not from eat-at-the-airport restaurants. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And Max, we're going to have to run the trailer for the new spinoff podcast, uh, Airport Eating. The yeah. airport. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: yes, and uh, yeah, because a lot of these uh, airport eating establishments uh, closed during the pandemic or went out of business and so forth. So, um, as always, don't don't build a trip around a particular uh, diner or a partic- at a particular airport. Um, you you might use airport dot com to identify something, but uh, contact them. Just make sure that they're still there, that, because it's not uh, you know it's not real live updated uh, information. All right, let's see, Brian, have you got an update for us on your uh, journey?
4: Yeah, with the oh boy, that journey! I've flown almost two hundred thousand miles this past year. So of my goal, I have 90,000 miles left. I have all the tickets purchased, and I will be finishing up in March. And I believe it's March, 30, March 21st, I'll be flying back from Cape Town, South Africa, and that will uh, be my flight to put me at 3 million miles. So I'll have done 300,000 miles in about 12 months. Wow. That's just phenomenal. What happens after that? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. That's actually a question that was asked of us. Uh, Micah and I haven't answered it yet. And I was thinking because we've had such a good time putting together the um, the interview segments that we've done that you guys have used in the bits and pieces or whenever. I was actually thinking about continuing that and maybe doing a monthly contribution of. A segment with Micah where we interview somebody, and you could use it however you want on on the show. And I don't know the my show might morph into that, or maybe it'll just go away. I I honestly don't know. I well, I hope we're, the, we're discussing.
0: I hope the journey is the reward. Podcast doesn't go away. I mean, maybe it needs you know would have to uh, pivot to something you know a little different, but. Yeah, you and Micah do such a great job together. its uh, I, I'd hate to see it go away completely, but. Yeah, it's just if I only fly
4: once a quarter, I don't know if that's a show. <laughs> yeah. Right? I mean, I think people would just lose interest in the, I mean, granted, the listenership isn't in the tens of thousands like airplane geeks. But, um, yeah, so I i don't know. I just don't know yet. I i think I'd like to do something. We'll, we'll see where we'll it
0: see. goes. All right. Micah, I understand uh you have a new episode out with uh with Brian.
3: Yeah, the uh, the new episode just came out today and we talk about Brian's latest trip to Africa and if you are one of the lucky first thirty-eight downloads, <laughs> you got the uh, the unexpurgated version without takes that weren't supposed to be there. So uh, <laughs> you get to hear Brian curse, and uh, well, we don't even even we don't even know what else is in there. But uh, so little we're sorry little, about oh, that.
4: Oh, I, I I know exactly what's in there.
3: <laughs> but <laughs> we, we, we apologize for that, and if you're offended, of course you you, you know where to write, um, which is I am really offended at Yahoo um, but also. So actually doing that particular uh, episode got me thinking about how, you know, years ago, the thought of a trip to Africa, you know, would be thought of as maybe a once in a lifetime opportunity or or maybe just a dream, you know, something that would never, ever happen. You know, you dream about maybe going on an African safari. But in the meantime, in this past year, Brian's been to Africa. I lost count three or four times, four times, four four times. times in the past year. He's been to Africa and he's going again.
4: Well, three or four times to Singapore.
3: Yeah, but yeah. it just made me think, you know, isn't aviation wonderful? Isn't it just amazing?
2: This means he spent four days in Africa and four days in Singapore. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
4: yeah. <laughs> Just about.
5: Okay. <laughs> no, this,
4: this last trip I actually spent an entire three, well, three and a half days in Africa uh, because the listener uh, came, came with me. So that was, that was an awful lot of fun. And then, yeah, so next year, I will, (laughs) next year, it sounds so far off. Next year, I have a trip planned to um, Tel Aviv, Singapore, South Africa, actually South Africa twice, and uh, Japan. Oh, to Tokyo? Yeah.
0: Are you going to stay there or just turn right around?
4: No, actually, it's a 10-day trip. So it's sort Ooh. of a, fi- a family vacation. So I have a nephew that is running in the Tokyo Marathon. Ah. And, yeah, and hopefully Dr. Steph from Airline Pilot Guy Show will be there and we'll be able to mm. meet up there. And, yeah, so That'd be- looking, looking forward to spending 10 days in a country.
0: Yes, yeah. I, I I've, In years uh, past, I visited Tokyo many, many times, uh, meeting with the airlines and, you know, uh, business trips there. And I, I really enjoyed going to Tokyo, it's uh, well, it's it's quite a different experience than any other place I've ever been, but I, I, I really enjoyed it.
4: Absolutely. I spent a little over a year living in there or living in Tokyo.
0: So oh, that's yeah. right. Okay. Yeah, I forgot. So you know all about mm-hmm. that. All right. David, do you have a holiday story for us?
1: I do. It's been two years for various reasons, but I if, if you're new to the podcast or you haven't been around um, since beginning, I have always done a Christmas story or a holiday story the last episode before Christmas. So last few years, um, it just somehow didn't seem right, feel right. So, But this year, we've got um, one called Mr. Bean Wants to Fly. It's all about Mr. Beancombs Esquire. It's a good gig being a dog. Your primary duties are to sleep, eat, require pets, and poop. Well, I've gotten trouble for doing the ladder in the living room under the tree. You know, the sparkly one they put after that turkey day thing? I just figured it was for me. So like I said, I had a normal life for a chorgie. Mom said I have something like royal Mexican blood. So I have the normal corgi profile. I'm very low to the ground, nice short hair, wiggly butt, and really big ears. I'm a good barker, too. My Aztec blood makes me feel like I can take on the biggest dogs in the neighborhood. I'm a good barker. Side story. I busted out of the house and took on this big old Doberman, charged right at her. I was protecting my turf. Well, flew out of the house, slid on the grass, and went right underneath her, a complete whiff. But I showed her who's boss. Again, that seemed to get me in trouble. They don't get that I was protecting the family. So back to my story. Fourteen years ago, evidently that's two in human years. I can't count. I'm a dog, remember? Oh, and another thing. You know that fake dog voice you humans do? FYI, we don't talk that way. So be right back. Nope. There were no butter cookie crumbs. So, David, he's my adopted human. Like I said, he magically appeared 14 years ago. I remember it clearly. Usually I don't remember what I did 10 minutes ago. Ooh, crumbs. Nope. He came into my house and I showed him who's boss. Mom was quite concerned and threatened to put me in the bathroom. You know, the place I have to go when some human or some other thing steps in the house. I'm pretty sure mom is protecting them from me. There's that Aztec blood again. So David, from the beginning, knew who was boss of the house. You know, the old saying that the weight of the dog's heart is through their belly. Ooh, belly rubs. He handed me a treat. So the next thing you know, he's scratching my head. I was like, then, ooh. He said, hi there. I can tell you're a good boy. Clearly, you're the alpha male. Ooh, I Don't know what that means, but I did like the sound of it. Mom was funny. I heard her say, that's not like him. I guess she meant it's good for David to be showing me the respect that I deserve. So time went on, and David and I came to an agreement. I would do what I was told and pretend he's in charge. It works out great To my treat ratio has been way up. He really did get mad at me once. See, on the table was this nice Philly cheesesteak. David always sneaks me something, so I thought I would save him the effort and grab half. Grab and ran, I did. He wouldn't let me sit on him that night. Dude, I said looking up at him, we share everything. He's a very tall human, and I don't hold that against him. Evidently, David would disappear disappear less and less. Now he goes to some place I call the museum. But if I wait by the door patiently, he returns and I jump on him and he gives me pets. Oh, morning pets. Those are so nice. Belly rubs before he disappears. He and I have been working on tricks. I pretend to screw up once or twice and then get it right and I get a treat. I've really trained him well. He sneaks food to me under the table. Now mom yells at him, not me. Victory. Wait, what was that? Oh, sorry. Miss me? I had to scare off that human with who brings the boxes I pee on, but... They're never for me. So back to tricks. I wanted to do something special for David. He's no dog, but he's a good human. Mom says he likes to fly. So that's what was going to be my new trick. I'm going to fly for David. The only problems are, what is flying and how do you do it? Well, it's Christmas Eve, and I think Mom, David, and Piper have disappeared. So I'm going to think real hard under this tree. My blankie feels good, and I'm just going to go. Wait, what was that? Must investigate. No, Bean, you know who I am. It's Santa Claus. Oh, you. Hello. So, Bean, have you been a good dog? Of course. No accidents or bad behaviors? Well, no more than usual. In my defense, the cat usually makes me do it. Well, Bean, what do you want for Christmas? I'll give you one wish. I need to fly. You want to fly? Dogs don't fly. Hey, don't give me an attitude. Neither do reindeer. Ho, ho, ho. Okay, Bean, that's fair. So, Bean, close your eyes and I'll teach you to fly. I fall asleep and wake up with a blast of wind. I was like in a car, well, sort of a car, with two roofs. It was red and very noisy. I didn't like it. I love riding in the car with the windows down. Suddenly I felt sick. I said, Santa, I don't like this. Santa called out, okay, Bean, the Bristol Bulldog wasn't the best idea. Let's try this. I was sitting in a chair. It was uncomfortable. I couldn't even curl up in my ball. Santa says, this is how most humans fly. Santa, David even fitness seat if this is how he flies i don't know why he likes it i gotta fly for david santa okay bean let's try david's other favorite thing suddenly i was going very fast and it was dark there was another thing chasing us going pew pew i hear santa say okay r2 we need to shake this tie no 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 this can't be flying santa please this isn't fun Okay, Bean, let's try this. It's quiet. There's a big triangle fetch thing over my head. I'm full sausage dog riding on Santa's back. We dip and saw. I balk at those white-headed wingy things. They don't seem to care. While it's nice Christmas tree is holding us up, I miss my couch and blankie. Santa, I don't want to fly anymore. David is going to be so disappointed in me. Suddenly, I'm sitting next to Santa, those reindeer pulling a sleigh. Below, it's so beautiful, sparkly, clear, and cold. I put my head in Santa's lap. The moon is glowing. It's really pretty, but that still isn't for me. Santa, how am I going to make David happy if I can't fly? It's important to him so much. Santa patted my head and said, you're a very silly dog, Bean. Yes, flying is important to David, and I've known that from his very first Christmas. Bean, I want you to know that you make him happy, and you do that by being you. You bring love, comfort, and joy to him, and he's always happy. And that is what Christmas means. You don't need to fly to do that. Santa, to be honest, I don't think I'm cut out for this flying stuff anyway. That's good, Bean. You're a good boy. You need to go to sleep now. It's almost Christmas morning. Oh, and Bean, I want to tell you a secret but you won't remember it tomorrow. Here it is. All dogs go to heaven, and when they do, they fly. Merry Christmas, little one. Just then the doorbell chimed. Hello, Bean, Mom called out, ran to her and Piper and jumped on him. I'm so happy, My wagging my tail. Where is he, Mom? Where is he? Door opens, and there's David. I'm so happy. How's my old man, he says, with a pat on the head. I learned to fly tonight. I didn't like it. I'm sorry to disappoint you. All David said was, Merry Christmas, Bean. You're the bestest friend I've ever had. I'm so lucky to have you, pup. Then he snuck me a butter cookie. I love you. I'm so happy. So for me, Mr. Bean Combs Esquire, I wish all of you flying people and your animal friends a happy holiday and a new year. I'm happy to be close to the ground, and I'll leave the flying to others. And this is dedicated to our friend Steve, who unfortunately lost his best friend Charlie this week. So Merry Christmas to all, and as always, Merry Christmas, and thank you to all of our listeners all year long.
0: All right, David. We haven't had a Christmas story in in quite a while. So thank you for that. Thank you for listening to the Airplane Geeks podcast. Our guest this episode was Stuart Vella, the Vice President of Commercial Development and Operations with the Plaza Premium Group. You can find us at airplanegeeks.com. The direct link to the show notes for this episode is at airplanegeeks.com slash 729. And of course, our email is thegeeks at airplanegeeks.com. All right. David Vanderhoof, I know that you've had some really significant technical issues this episode. I want to thank you for sticking with us. I assume you're still with us. David, anything closing that you'd like to say? Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. All right. Max Trescott, how about you?
2: Hey, I want to thank everybody for hanging out with us over the past year or years and wish everybody a Merry Christmas, enjoy the holidays, and uh, look forward to seeing you all next year. Absolutely. Brian Coleman, where can folks find you? Oh, the best place to
4: get a hold of me is at brian at airplanegeeks.com or you can find Micah and me on org, And
0: finally, Micah.
3: Well, I'm available on Twitter. I'm still there for who knows how long, but that's where I'm going to be for a little bit, and that's at MaineFly, M-A-I-N-E like the state, Fly, F-L-Y, at Mainfly. And I'm also available on Mastodon at this point, and that's uh, mainfly at twit.social and I've already found found some of you guys and have some other people following me, and uh, it's kind of interesting over there. I've also found, uh, just so uh, anybody who's moving there might want to know about it, there's a, a website called Move to Don, all one word. And if you plug in your Twitter account and your Mastodon account, it will find everybody you're following on Twitter, and if they're on Mastodon, bring them over there. So it's very, very handy. org. Wow, I hadn't heard of that one. I'll have to check that Yeah, out. works out pretty well. So, And this week, as we're recording this, is Hanukkah. I plan on eating lots and lots of latkes, and, uh, <laughs> and that's always the best thing to do. And then with Christmas coming up, uh, it's Chinese food for me. I'm looking forward to that as well, and my Christmas Eve fish sandwich.
0: <laughs> very good, very good. Uh, Next week uh, is Christmas week, of course, and uh, we have an aviation story from Micah that fits in with the season. So you can look forward to that next week. And the following week, which is New Year's week, uh, we'll have an interesting interview that Micah and Brian recorded with the president of a company producing uh, SAF,
3: S-A-F, Sustainable Aviation Fuel and we should also have my uh, annual year in review that I haven't done for a couple of years, but it should be done by then.
0: That's right. So look for that uh, uh, New Year's week. And then following that in January, we've, uh, we've got uh, a couple of guests lined up and a bunch in the pipeline. So we think that you'll enjoy the guests that we have in, in January of the new year. So till next time, bye, everybody, and happy holidays. And keep the
4: blue side up. Fly safely. Have a great week.
1: Bye, everybody.